Good morning. Today is the day, if you're a foodie, that the stars have aligned. All right, and what I mean by it is this. We have Potluck Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, all shared in one day. I know Mike... Stan and Ken Komiya are probably very excited about today. I'm a foodie as well. Uh, I'm very excited. You guys can applaud that because I'm really excited about it. It's, it's kind of sad. However, I, I was watching Good Morning America earlier this week. They said that today, on average, the average attendee of a Super Bowl party will consume just about, just for the party itself, around 3,000 calories. So in preparation, I was joking with Stan. I actually ran around Lake Shawnee yesterday just to kind of, you know, not feel guilty about all the food that I'm going to be eating today. But anyhow, I just wanted to, just to share that with you guys. Um, today's a great day, and I'm excited about it. But um, before we can do that, we, you know, we have to do teaching. So um, you guys may, some of you may remember this. Um, this, this person, well, everybody probably remembers this person, but this period of his life in the 19, late 70s, early 80s, Bob Dylan um, became a Christian. It was actually pretty controversial because he became so evangelical in his approach in concerts, and he came out with this kind of gospel-like record. Um, one of the songs that he had on there was called Gotta Serve Somebody. Uh, the song has been used in countless sermon illustrations, and everybody goes to quote it. It's actually a pretty long song as far as lyrics, um, but the title is Gotta Serve Somebody, and I just wanted to pick a piece from that and just read that to you as an intro. It says, You might be a rock and roll addict, prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You might be, might, you may be a businessman or someone high-degree thief. There may, they may call you doctor or they may call you chief, but you've got to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Um, Bob Dylan, was a, he, he still is one of the greatest singer-songwriters because he, had such a, he, he did such a great job of illustrating obvious truths in, in, in songs and in lyrics. And this is very true in this song. No matter what we're doing in this life, we're always serving somebody, whether it's, whether it's Christ or Satan or ourselves or someone else or whatever, we have to serve somebody. And so that kind of intro is what I want to talk about today, which is idolatry. This is actually going to be the first of three sermons that I'll be giving. It's the start of a series called American Idols. Today's title is, um, today's title is this, We Become What We Worship. Now, this idea of becoming what we worship is actually borrowed from what we'll see later in Psalm 115 um, and later on in um, a couple other pieces of Scripture. But um, where I got the main idea, and, and this is actually Mike Halpin's book. This book's been rocking my world spiritually. It's called um, We Become What We Worship by G.K. Beale. He is the professor or New Testament professor at Wheaton Theolo- uh, Theological um, School. Um, it's just kind of a biblical theology on idolatry, and this is where I want to park ourselves, at least for what the teaching that I will be doing um, over the f- next few months. Um, and it's a big subject, and I was talking to Mike earlier, really, I don't feel like I can do justice to such an enormous topic that for the longest period of time had just been off, off my spiritual radar. This theme of idolatry, especially the idea that we become what we worship, is profound in Scripture, which I'll point out today, but I think we're just going to be scratching the surface of all the implications and what this means um, found in, um, in Scripture. So with that, would you just pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, uh, we meet here today as a family. Lord, excited. We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is, which is really why we're meeting, Lord. It's potluck and Super Bowl Sunday. All those things are great, and they're, they're great feastings and, and, and times of community, Lord. But it's in the Lord's Supper that we can share and break bread with each other and share what you did on the cross. And so even now, as I prepare to give this message, Lord, I just ask that you would be uh, 
prepping our hearts for, for the Lord's Supper, Lord, and what that means. And so, Father, would you just bring light to this issue? Holy Spirit, would you just come on us and just enlighten our hearts so that we can hear the message that we need to hear? This idea of idolatry is huge. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would be working in us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who, who shed his life on us for the cross. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I need to give a bit of a more background of why specifically I want to talk about idolatry. Um, some of you may know, actually I told this story to the to youth group in a Sunday school lesson, and I've told a few other. This is an embarrassing story. Um, I just want to say that up front. I had, I had been slated to teach, or not teach, to take a class at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis called Film and Theology. I was stoked. There was a couple books that we were supposed to read. I'd read the books. I'd made my notes. I was good to go. I'd planned getting there Monday night, staying in a hotel, staying with some people on campus Tuesday through Friday. All right? I was completely excited. I was so excited I woke up like two hours earlier than what I had planned to wake up just because you know how it's like Christmas almost where you wake up way, way earlier than you should? Well, that was me for this film and theology class. I was stoked. So I get there about a half hour early. And when I get there, I sit down, I'm getting my stuff out, going over my notes, all that sort of stuff. Well, this, this girl sits in front of me about five minutes into it, and she pulls out these books, and I look at them, and they're, they're, they're just you know two random books I hadn't seen, and so I don't think much of it. Well, somebody else sits down next to her, and they pull out the same books that she pulls out. So I'm like, well, this is kind of weird, you know, not thinking much. And little, literally not four minutes later, somebody else comes and sits down off in the corner, and I just look over, and they have the same books as those two other people. So now I'm freaking out. Because I'm like, okay, there's something wrong. Something, you know, I'm obviously in the wrong class or whatever. So I run over to the admissions office and I say, hey, I think I'm in the wrong class. Could you just help me? I'm supposed to take film and theology um, at 8.30 this morning. What, what room is it is? I think it got changed around. I didn't get the email. Well, she, she looked and she's like, I don't know how to tell you this, but that class isn't for another two weeks. <laughs> so I had, I had drove all the way to St. Louis, a five-hour drive. I'd spent money on, on a hotel, which was budgeted. And if you know Grace, a budget... We live by a budget, right? And so that's, that's a big deal. So I'm, start, I'm just freaking out. I mean, it's full out, you know, freaking out. I don't know what to do. She's like, it's okay. If you want, you can take this other class called Disciplines of Grace in the same, that same classroom and, uh, and, and take that, and it's two hours. And I, and I rush, and, and I say, okay, you know, I'll take it. And I go back there, and I'm just, I'm just upset, you know. I'm just, man, I really wanted to take this class because it was being taught by a guy that was a Francis Schaeffer disciple and all. And I just, I'm just let down completely. And... In it, God used that, that my faultiness, because if you look at my calendar, I actually have the dates written down for the week that I was, I was supposed to show up, but I had just, I glazed over it for whatever reason. He used that to work a great, great deal of spiritual profoundness in my life. The class ended up rocking my world and is continuing to rock in my world, and we focused, and the reason why I share this story is because it was about idolatry. And, and it, it changed me in such a way that I feel like I wanted to teach that. I had planned on teaching something else, but I wanted to teach this topic. Um, another book, if you want to write this down, is a book called Counter, Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. He's a pastor of uh, Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I would consider, or I would, for those that are more um, interested in this topic, I would just, uh, I, would, I would throw that book your way. <clears throat> If you would, turn to your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 44, 9 through 20. That's where we're going to park ourselves, at least for part of the, the discussion of idolatry. And, and really this question of becoming, what does it look like, or what does it mean to become what we worship? It 
it says in Isaiah, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about Isaiah in the book itself. Um, it says, in starting in verse 9, and this is a big section, so we're going to kind of cut out that midsection and really um, touch on the bookends of this, this, this passage. It says this, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things that they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. This is a great... This is great imagery of what just of what's going on here. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He makes it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak. And then he goes on and he, and he says in verse 15, he says, Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. And then skipping just a bit ahead in verse 18, he says, They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot understand. Going back... They do not know, or nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes. And when he says, for he, he's referring to God, so that they cannot see in their hearts, so that they cannot understand. My study Bible, when you read the introduction of Isaiah, it kind of prefaces the theme of Isaiah, and it says this about it. It says, the book is about uh, people that have received so much privilege from God, and not to be grateful children, but have despised the Holy One of Israel. I think that's important to know because whenever we can get ourselves in the context of Scripture and what's going on, it kind of helps frame um, the chapter that we're reading. But what we can see here, and looking back at verse 16, is he says this, Half of it burns in the fire over, half, over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied and he warms himself. And then in verse 17 it says, And the rest of it he makes into a god. And, and Isaiah, and God is pointing out the foolishness of idolatry, the ludicrousness of idolatry, is that at one minute you're taking this, this tree You've cut half of it off, right? You fashioned it. You fashioned it into an idol, and then you're using the other half to basically f- to to fuel your food that's being cooked. And he's he's pointing out this this ridiculousness of, of idolatry, but yet this is something that the the people of Israel have embraced. Um, it then says out after pulling out or pointing out the foolishness of idolatry, it says in verse eighteen, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. So in verse 9, we see that Isaiah references idols as neither being able to see or to know, and in verse 18, we find out what the fate of those who worship and fashion idols. So in verse 9, we see the idols, we see what their physical features are, they can't see, they they don't have a heart, they can't discern, and then what happens to those people that that are actually making those idols? They're starting to take on spiritually the features of those idols in verse 19. If you would, just allow me to geek out for a second, because I love theology, and for those eggheads that are here, this is something that you may want to take with you. But what G.K. Beale points out, whenever you see the, uh, the idea of, of hearts being hardened, eyes being callous, he calls it this. He calls it sensory organ malfunction. All right, And this is, a, this is something that is found in Scripture a lot more than what we realize. Sensory organ malfunction. For instance, let's, let's, let's look at um, Isaiah 6, if you want, and it's in verse 8. 
And this is kind of important to know because there's certain scholars that say that, you know, there's, there's multiple authors, Isaiah, and I find this to be completely in the face of that because it's such a unifying thought found in the book of Isaiah. But that's neither here nor there. Um, it says in verse, or chapter 6, verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And, he, and I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell his people, Be ever hearing, be never understanding, be ever seeing, but never um, perceiving. Make the heart of his people, or this people, calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their hearts, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. He's telling Isaiah this, and you read it in the, in the chapters leading up to this, that they have given themselves over to idols. And so God is saying, okay, make their hearts harden like these idols. And actually in verse 18, going back to Isaiah forty-four eighteen, when it says that their eyes have been smeared, some translations might actually say that their eyes have been smeared with clay so that they cannot see. <clears throat> this, this is a, 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 a constant theme in Scripture. And just one more uh, verse that I want us to look at is this. Psalm 115, starting in verse 4. It says, and you don't have to flip there. It says, But their idols are silver and gold, made by hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. I believe the psalmist isn't saying that people literally become, and nobody would say that, they're literally becoming idols. But here's what the point is being made is this, is that when, when we embrace idols, and when the, the people of Israel were embracing idols, these, these things are, they functionally, they have mouths, you know, they're graven images, they have mouths, they have ears, they have noses, all that sort of thing. But spiritually, Israel is becoming like that. They're becoming spiritually bankrupt. Their hearts are becoming hardened like the, the, the hearts of stone or the stone that is crafted out of these idols. They're unable to hear God's word. They're unable to see what God is doing. And so they are, they are basically being given over to their idolatrous behaviors or worship. Paul, in Romans, touches on this when he says this. And this, this is, I love the fact, and sorry if it's just blowing me away because I had never realized how obvious, like this is one of those those alarms that God's shooting through Scripture, and you don't even realize how obvious it is until it's finally made clear to you. And this is, for Paul, he says this in, in Romans chapter 1, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and here's the part we need to listen to, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And here comes the, the famous Pauline, Therefore. If you, if you studied Paul and his letters, therefore, is, you find that, that quite often. He says, therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God to a lie and worship um, and lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. They essentially became what they were worshiping. So here's what God's doing. He's saying this. He's saying, I want all of you. I want you to worship me. I want you to obey me. I want you to trust in me. And we have this story in Scripture of the, the people of God saying, no, that's okay, I'm good, let me have my own thing, let me do what I think's best for me, what, let me do what's right in my own eyes, never mind what you're commanding us to be. And so God says this, all right, if you want an idol, if you're so convinced, then I will, I will give you idols, I will make you an idol, I will make you like that idol. This, and I was again talking to Mike about this, this story blew me away. 
Remember Lot? We were talking about Lot last week. Lot's wife. Lot, Lot, Lot's wife and Lot, they were, they were told to flee Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah and not to look back. And this is, this is interesting and found in Scripture. Lot's wife looks back. And I think, and, and G.K. Beale makes this point, I think they're making a connection to the fact that she was looking back because she was still connected to the city. That she had made the love for her city and the care for her city an idol apart from God. God's saying, look forward. I have a place for you. I've called you to. This is a secure land I'm leading you to. And she looks back. And what happens to her? She becomes a pillar of salt. She looks back to a place that's being destroyed by fire and brimstone that's literally be turned, being turned into a pillar of salt. And what does she become? She herself becomes a pillar of salt. She, in that, that moment of turning back, was acknowledging what was true in her heart, which was idol- idolatry for a love of her city, more so than God, and she literally becomes what she's worshiping. And I think God, using, using that story, was already beginning to illustrate a truth. One thing I like to think about when I teach, I like to think about how, going back to my you know, film and theology, how can, how can we relate this idea and this teaching to, to Scripture um, and to the, the, the uh, cultural, cultural climate that we're in right now? And so when I was thinking of this topic and I was trying to wrestle with this topic, I started to think about movies and one movie, um, Dan, you probably have seen, you know, we've all watched it, but was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And it's one of those movies that when I saw when I was five years old and they go through the tunnel, I was terrified because it was like things that I, it just, you know, they just frighten you as a little kid. But the story itself is a great story. And I don't know, I tried to do some research. I don't know if the director, in fact, was a Christian or not, but the theme of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the kids involved in it, are, are making a, a great illustration of what it means to become what we worship. Let me give you let me give you my take, my interpretation of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You have this you have this kid named Augustus, right? And the first pictures you have of Augustus is what? And I, maybe I should give you some background. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, right? There's these golden tickets, and everyone wants these golden tickets. And so there's a pursuit for the golden ki- tickets because they want to visit Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory or his Chocolate Factory. Willy Wonka is a recluse. And nobody knows much about him, but they know all this magical goodness of candy and, and confections is going on in his, behind his, his doors that he's, he's kind of secured. And so he issues that he's going to let five, or, yeah, five people in to experience the chocolate factory. And so there's this, there's this global pursuit for these five golden tickets. And the first one to win is this, guy, this kid named Augustus. And Augustus is this, he's, just, he's, a, he's chubby, he's a chubby glutton, right? Because the first picture you see of him, he's consuming all these sausages, he loves sausages. He's eating food. And you get this feeling that he, he doesn't care so much about the, the, the golden ticket and being able to satisfy that mystery or that wonderment of the chocolate factory, but that he can just go there and eat as much as he wants to. And so finally, he gets to go there. And he, 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 uh, he's, in the, he's in that candy land, and he's just consuming this candy. And he, I remember him, he had that big jelly thing, and he breaks it open, and he's like, his face is covered in jelly, right? And he's just, he's just a pig. And then you have him, and at what moment you have him in the chocolate factory or in the chocolate candy land, and there's that, there's that river of chocolate. And he's sitting there and he's lapping it up, right? And Willy Wonka's saying, don't do that, don't do it. And he's sitting there and he's lapping it up and he becomes so consumed by, by wanting to just eat that he actually falls into the river. And he gets sucked up and he's, he's basically taken off into a furnace. I believe that he was becoming like that which he, had, he created an idol for. Let me give you another example. Violet. Remember Violet? She was a brat. She was selfish. 
She was competitive. She wanted to win. And then she didn't care if she demoralized her father in the process of doing that. She had an inflated ego, right? And so she gets to this one part. She, she makes it through, but she gets to this one part of where they, they're making this kind of gum that has like four courses to it, something like that. And she begins to eat it. And, and Willy Wonka says, don't do it. And she's like, you're not going to tell me what I want to do. Well, what happens? She eats the, the gum, and she's going through all these different meals, and then comes the, the dessert, which is blueberry, blueberry pie, and she literally becomes a blueberry, and she's inflated. And I think the inflation, the, her actual physical inflation of her body is symbolizing the inflation of her ego, and she has actually became what she was worshiping in herself, which was her basically her ego. And then you have Ruka Salt, who's just, I mean, she's just a brat. She's a spoiled brat. Her dad actually hires people to come and open up chocolate bars, millions and millions of cases, because she has to have that golden ticket. And she, she's going to do whatever she can to get that golden ticket. And so what happens is they have these factory workers just disregarding chocolate because the chocolate themselves are great and great tasting, but who cares? Because all that matters is that golden ticket, and she gets it. And so she goes into the factory, and all she wants is that golden... She sees the golden gooses, and she... Um, I don't know if I said that right, but anyhow... Um, she wants it so bad, she says, you know, Dad, that's what I want. And the, and the father says, Willie, how much is it? He said, well, those aren't for sale. He's like, oh, come on, Willie Wonka, everything's for sale. No, they're not for sale. And she just has a fit to the point where she, during her little, her little song, she actually steps on the eggs that measure a good egg and a bad egg, and she's deemed a bad egg, and she's dumped into the furnace. Willie Wonka, and this is the great thing about Christianity, and I encourage us to do is to kind of open up our eyes and see in which way culture is, is depicting spiritual truths, because, as John Piper says, truth speaks. Willie Wonka, I think, is putting a thumb on the idea that we, we become what we worship. <clears throat> a good definition of an idol is this, whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God. If you take a moment, I'm sure you can begin to self-reflect and reflect inwardly about some of these idols. It's easy to kind of think about idolatry as this. It's easy to think um, money, pride, uh, vanity. Those are, all, those are all obvious idols. But let's, let's really start to, when I say this, because I know it's easy to glaze over and not think about this much, but let's really start to, to put ourselves in some, some sort of self-awareness and think about it. And I'll use myself as an example in this class because I think it's important because I'm just going to confess to you guys about this. Um, for those that you that are visiting, or, or those that haven't been here that often, I love this church. I love it. I, I've, I, I serve here. I'm the youth director. Um, I really enjoy my time here at Lion the Lamb. And I understand this: that God has called Grace and I to something else in a short amount of time. We're going to be moving to St. Louis, so I can, uh, you know, pursue a Master's of Divinity in Covenant Theological Seminary. That being said, when I was in this class, I started to realize something about me. When I was little, um, yeah, I don't think my dad's here. When I was little, I, I was made fun of. I was a chubby kid. I was made fun of quite often for my chubbiness. And because of it, I have, I have, I have this fragile ego. I had this fragile ego for a long time where I wasn't comfortable with who I was. And so here's, here's where I'm going with this. I, was, I would do things because I wanted people to like me, or I wanted to feel important, or I wanted to feel accepted. And why that's significant is this, is, is, is we were in that class in the Disciplines of Grace. He, Scotty Smith, who was the, is the pastor of a, a megachurch in Nashville, Tennessee, admitted this himself, that you have to be careful as pastors and leaders not to do things out of the sense of listening to man's praise. And I'll connect this story later, but I realized it was this kind of aha moment about myself spiritually 
that when I was there at Covenant Seminary, I began thinking of all the different ways that Grace and I could somehow stay at Lion the Lamb Church because, you know, at Covenant, you're just a small fish in a big pond. You know, you're not, you're not that bright compared to the guys that are shipping in from Germany or, or Belgium, you know, that are scholars. And you're not as dynamic as the guys that they have doing inner city mission plants in Brooklyn or Philadelphia, right? So there, my ego is in jeopardy. You get what I'm saying? I was fashioning, whether I realized it or not, I was fashioning this idol out of just wanting to be accepted, wanting to be needed. Here at Lion the Lamb, you know, I'm the youth director, you know. I, I, you know, I, was, I was running the risk of feeling needed for the sake of feeling needed and not because I was passionate about serving God and doing what I was, I was going to do. Now, I have to, I have to say all this because I don't really think that I was going into full-blown full idolatry because I think the leadership does a great enough job of judging people's hearts and, and discerning what's right, and I think God is in this. But it made me realize, it made me self-aware that maybe in the back, because of some of the wounding that, I, that happened to me when I was little, emotionally, was creating these idol structures in my life that I hadn't become fully aware of. And God, through that class and my brokenness and and choosing the wrong class and all that, was saying, Steve, I want more of you. Come to St. Louis because I've called you there. Take that leap of faith and do it. And trust me. And that was profound. And And I say that because let's just move past the big ones. Let's move past greed and and success and vanity, because that's we all know that those are out there and those exist. But what if your idol, or what if your thinking is this, that you you do things because idolatry is defined as whatever claims the loyalty of um, that belongs to God. I would also say anything that motivates you beyond wanting to serve God or out of His loyalty is also an idol structure. So let's say, you know, Steve, I don't really struggle with that, but you work a lot more than you should. And you do it to the point of neglecting your family. Because in that, you find meaning in that. You find, you find value as a man or a woman that you support the family. Or that you're able to, to provide all these things. To the point that you neglect your role as being the headship of the family. Or serving the husband. Or what if this? What if you say, well Steve, I'm a family man. Well what if you, you and I've seen this, and this is why I bring it up. People have kids to cover their brokenness. So they have like, you know, Vincent, I'm not even going there with you guys. I'm, you know, that's not true. I'm not trying to say it. They have, you see, you know, somebody has one kid after the next because all they're trying to do is cover up their brokenness. Because what they really want is they want to feel accepted and they want to feel loved. And they're making an idol out of their children. Or, here's, here's one, and we see this, they don't discipline their kids because they're worried if they discipline their kids that their kids aren't going to love them. And they're going to feel neglected. And so they, they, they disregard all, that, all those passages in the scriptures for raising an upright child because they really just don't want to avoid the pain of having that severed fellowship with their kids. Because really, in reality, their kids are more of a, an idol uh, or, or more of a God than, than the Lord of all, all creation. What I mean in, in an analogy or a story to this is, is this. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine that I work with, and we were talking and we started talking about, you know, God's call in our lives. And I was explaining why I was going to seminary and all that. And I said this. I said, listen, let me ask you this. Because I, I, I had conversations with him about his family. And this is kind of a big one for me. I had conversations with him about his family. And I said, you know, if God was calling you to go to Africa, and you knew that you would never be able to see your, your, your grandchildren again, you know, hypothetically, because I really want to know where his heart was at, I said, would you do it? And he says, man, Steve, I don't think I could do it. I'd, I'd have to tell God, I think you got the wrong guy. 
He, because he loved his family so much, he would disregard a blatant... And I said, what if God was directly speaking to you, saying, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm calling you, I'm sending you out. And he says, I don't think I can do that. My family is so important to me. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know if I could. And I guarantee you, he wouldn't admit this, but I guarantee you his idol is family and that he's raised that above the worship and loyalty to God. He is loyal to his family first, God second. And I love this person but I guarantee you that is something that he struggles with. So let's get past these, these big idols. Because obviously greed and vanity and all those things are, are important to think about. But really what's motivating us in our lives? Start thinking about ways that we are unaware in which we've been broken spiritually. And, and through that brokenness, we've embraced these idols of needing to be affirmed to the point of actually doing things that are spiritually destructive to us. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this about the subject of becoming what we worship. He says, This brings us to the first of two golden rules at the heart of spirituality. You become what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object that you worship. Those who worship money become eventually human calculating machines. Um, I think of uh, Christmas Carol, right? Scrooge. Human calculating machines. Those who worship sex become with their own attractiveness and prowess. Those who worship power become more and more ruthless. So what happens when you worship the creator of God, whose plan to rescue the world and to put it right has been accomplished by the lamb who was slain? The answer is the second golden rule. Because you were made in God's image, worship makes you more truly human. When you gaze in love and gratitude at the God and those who are at the God in whose image you were made, you do indeed grow. You discover more of what it means to be fully alive. Conversely, when you give the same total worship to anything or anyone else, and listen to this, conversely, when you give that same total worship to anything or anyone else, you shrink as a human being. And I'll touch it. We're created in the image of God, so we're shrinking as human beings in our humanness. It doesn't, of course, feel like that at the time. When you worship part of the creation as though it were the creator himself, in other words, when you worship an idol, you may well feel a brief high. But like a hallucinatory drug that worship achieves its effect at a cost when the effect is over, you are less of a human being that you were to begin with. That is the price of idolatry. Israel, in the book of Isaiah, had given themselves over to, to worshiping idols. God was, was pouring out judgment upon them because of that. And he had basically hardened their hearts in ways that they, they couldn't respond back to what God has been doing. You can see, if we start to look in, in society, we can see people that have become what they've worshipped. In this book, G.K. Bill, he talks about a philosophy professor that he had. And I want to read this story. I was reading it to Grace last night, and it really just struck me. Because, like Mike says, you know, at least he's consistent. At least he completely embraced the idol that he was worshipping. Um, but it's just a devastating story. He says this, I once had a philosophy professor who was an atheistic existentialist. He was more consistent than some Christians are in living out his beliefs. He passionately believed them. He believed all his life was without meaning, and he committed himself to the idol of irrationality. He believed that since there is no God, there is no meaning. So in life he would say, Why should I listen to the authority of the university? There is no God who set up any authorities, including university authorities. So he would only come to class every once in a while. He would say, let's go to the pub or maybe to my house. Maybe we won't meet for a, f a few weeks or three weeks, and we'll just see how it goes. Eventually, the university fired him. And then a few later, I had read a newspaper headline regarding him, and this is profound. It says, university professor commits experiment in suicide. 
Because life had no meaning, he thought that perhaps in the act of suicide, he would find some irrational mystic meaning. So he slashed his wrist, and as he was dying, he was taking notes, and he said, These notes are for my students. And in case I find no meaning in this suicide, and I doubt I will, because there is no meaning in anything, maybe they will find some irrational mystic meaning in my thoughts as I am dying and taking notes. He devoted himself to the idol of irrationality, became irrational, and was destroyed by it. At least he was consistent, right? But he became what he was worshiping. He, he worshiped the idol of irrationality, and in an irrational state, he committed suicide as a, some sort of mystical Crazy exercise. Now, I'm not saying all this, because I, I, I understand I usually have an edge to my sermons, and so I worry that I'm, I'm just calling people out left and right and, and all that. I'm not saying this, and I'm not teaching on this subject as a way of saying that's where we're at as a church, and that's where you guys are at as people. But the, this, this as, as much as this, 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 this book and Scripture has been kind of a, uh, an alarm for me spiritually, so can we read these stories and see the alarming message in the, in the scriptures themselves. And that's what I think what we need to take about from it, that, um, that God is, is, is yelling at us with a siren, right? And we hear it. And so in, in that, and in seeing what Israel's fate was, and, hear, and in seeing what Paul was talking about in, in Romans chapter 1, we can, we can kind of turn from it. In other words, I know we don't like to use this word, but we can repent from it and we can be, remade, um, we can be restored. Um, the student ministry of Mosaic says that we, as a student ministry, want to pursue Christ's likeness. Paul, in the letter of Philippians, he echoes this command in chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. He charges us to join in imitating Christ. The last thing I want to talk about is we, as, as human beings, are image bearers. God says in, in Genesis, in the creation narrative, he says, that he, he says, let us make man in our image, creating us in our likeness. We have been created, as each one of us as human beings have been created in the image of God. And so in, in, that, in that creation, we have been given the thumbprint of God, and so we are supposed to reflect that image of God in everything that we're doing. And, and, and what N.T. Wright was saying, and I think that's an important thing to note, is that at any point in life, we're either reflecting the image of God or reflecting something else. It is reflecting what we're worshiping, reflecting what's on our hearts and what's on our minds. So that's a question to kind of end with. What, what really are you reflecting? When we, when we kind of start wrapping things up and we, we take the Lord's Supper and we take the bread, which you know signifies or, or symbolizes uh, God's body broken or Jesus Christ's body broken on the cross in the, the cup, of, of blood poured out, symbolizing blood poured out, what really in our lives are we reflecting? And let's get past all these, these big ones that we all know, yes, this and that. But really, just don't disregard this message as, you know, this is Steve and he's, just, he's kind of, you know, aggressive in his sermon style, but really think about it and really spend some time reflecting because maybe it's me and I'm, I'm teaching about it because I'm passionate about this and because it's changed me. But if you just spend some time thinking Man, there's some, there, there were some definite areas of, of, of entertaining idols in my own life, which I was telling you guys about, and I'm sure you could find that in some of you. And if some of you aren't, you're good to go. And if you say, I am reflecting you know, God, and I understand that, then that's, that's fine. But we are called to reflect the image of God. That is what we've been created to be. And so, as, as G.K. Beale says, um, we, we, in our worship, we reveal who we, who we have loyalties to, either for... Um, restoration or destruction. If I can just leave you with this last question, this last comment, it says, 
Ask yourselves as we take the Lord's Supper this, what are we becoming? What are we resembling? What image are we bearing? God, the creator of all things, or things and desires in creation. Um, this will be the first of, uh, of you know, two more series. I don't want us to leave us there. I want us to actually kind of work through what idolatry is and how we can recognize them and how we can move out. But I think, again, what are we becoming? What are we resembling? What image are we bearing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for this day. And Lord, I love meeting as a church, as a family, as a community, God, that I feel like you are stirring within us a passion to do something, Lord. But Lord, as, as much as it feels great to be a part of something, what we feel significant, Lord, that we, we, we have to have your glory in mind in all things. God, that without you interacting in humanity through the Son, Jesus Christ, we would be destined for death and deserve death. Lord, that you have, you have snatched us out of, of destruction that was leading to death and have rescued us those that are marked with Christ. And so, Lord, I just, I thank you for that. And as we reflect on what you did on the cross by giving over your son and letting him pay the price for our sin, Lord, I hope that that just transforms our hearts and and that we can start to reflect in our own lives about ways that we honestly have been entertaining entertaining idols. And, And maybe for a lot of us, we didn't even see it on our radars but I hope that we can go to texts like in Isaiah and the Psalms and Genesis and in Romans and we can see the idea that we become what we worship. Lord, we want to become more like you. Our goal is Christ-likeness. And so, Lord, would you just help conform us to your image. Lord, in every way we want to magnify you and we want to proclaim your goodness and your glory. Jesus, we love you and we just ask that you would be working in our hearts now during this time of worship. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.